You're listening to the Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle Dolan as she interviews a range of prominent leaders about their experiences. Her guests share stories about challenges they have faced during their career, as well as important learning opportunities or moments of insight. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are encouraged to embrace authenticity and real communication. Hi everyone, it's Gabrielle here again and welcome to the Authentic Leadership Podcast. I am very excited to be speaking to Janelle McMaster, who is the Deputy CEO at EY and Markets Leader. Um, I had the pleasure of being on Janelle's podcast uh, last year, so um, I'm turning the tables on her and asking her curly questions. So welcome, Janelle. Thanks, Raoul. I'm a little bit nervous with this turning the tables, but happy to be here. <laughs> I'm actually, I can't even remember if you did ask me curly questions, so I'll go easy You on did you. say a couple of times, oh, I haven't been asked that before. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can't remember what they were, but I remember they, um, I remember one question you asked me, I, it stumped me, so we, we, we might put <laughs> I a wasn't link. trying to cut you out, I promise. <laughs> yeah, you say that now. <laughs> Okay, um, so we're going to start with a few, you know, questions so we, the audience can get to know you a bit mm-hmm. more before we get stuck into some work stuff. Um, but just maybe just tell us a little bit about you, where you grew up. Like, what was your early life like? Um, well, I was born in Sydney, remarkably, about five 10 minutes from where I live now, full circle, actually. Um, that, uh, my mum always laughs about where I live now. I live in the eastern suburbs. But I lived, uh, uh, my parents moved over from Fiji to Australia. Mum was six months pregnant with me. Um, and I was born on Crown Street, really, really poor. I think my parents had about $300 between them uh, as they migrated to Australia. Then moved over to the Blue Mountains for a little while and um, then to the, the, the Sutherland Shire of, uh, of, of Sydney. So grew up in, in those areas. My my mum and dad, mum had 13 brothers and sisters, dad had five. Neither of them had any siblings in Australia. My mum still doesn't, even up to 13 brothers and sisters wow. in Australia. So what was the catalyst for their move, especially when she was six months pregnant? Yeah, I think it was a bad opportunity, you know. So uh, my dad uh, was an English teacher and had got a, um, you know, he'd uh, studied in New Zealand for a little while and he could see opportunity in Australia. So they made a choice, which is really bold, I think, when you think about how massive their families were to come together on their own um, and come to Australia. And I, I often think about that as, you know, those sliding door moments in your life. If my parents hadn't done that, I mean... I, I, my mind boggles when I think what could have happened. I just got so much opportunity. I'll forever be grateful for that decision. My dad brought a couple of his brothers over years later, um, but my mum never had her siblings move over. So big move, so, so bold, um, and just driven by the idea that there could be opportunities for us. Yeah, it is such a massive move, and especially, you know, being six months pregnant and probably mm. being so used to having family support around That's you. Right. Um, unless, of course, they didn't like their families. <laughs> <laughs> they told me that they were into them, but it was a really big move. They used to live in this uh, apartment with no bathroom. Um, they had to put, I think, 20 cents or 50 cents into a bathtub to get some water in there and then share it. Mum would have a bath heavily pregnant with me and she'd get out and whatever dirty water's left over, Dad would use that bath. And so when I think about that as a starting out point to where 
we all are now. It's and they, they celebrated their fiftieth wedding anniversary on the weekend, and obviously in lockdown. But uh, it's just it's just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You just brought back memories. We used to always have to share the bath water because I'm one of eight kids and it was just the the younger ones. Um, I'd always try to get in first because I didn't want to be getting in that bath water after my two brothers. (laughs) No way, no, getting first. Yeah. Um, So so you were born in Sydney, you lived in Sydney, sort of uh, in the same area, what what was your first job? Whether it was like a real job, as in getting paid, or just helping your parents, what was your first job? Well, my first real job, getting paid. Um, get this, I was a spruker for Woolies, um, and so I used to work in Jim and Hester's Delicatessen, and I would be out there spruking. You know, good morning, customers, and welcome to Woolworths Bankstown. Uh, we've got thick and thin sausages going out for one ninety nine a kilo. You heard it right, customers, one ninety nine a kilo. These sausages are walking themselves out the door. So that was. So you still remember? Oh, yeah. You because you probably said it like you know a thousand times whilst uh, whilst you know sizzling some bacon to attract people over to the deli. Uh, yeah, that's where I started. That's, that would have put you in good stead for your deputy CEO role now. Getting, getting the troops, getting the troops on board, getting them all yeah, excited. For it. What, yeah. Where else could they, I take those skills? <laughs> so, um, so tell us now. You live now. What's your What's your situation now? You live now. Clearly, I you do live, live now. now um, yeah, that's good because it'd be a pretty boring interview if you didn't. Um, where do you live now, and what's your situation? And then we'll get into what you do. Um, I live in Sydney and I have a husband who is a um, sports psychologist and uh, two children, a 12 and a 13 year old who are all within um, stone's throw distance from me right now. So hopefully we, there's no, not too much background noise. How are you going with homeschooling? I need to ask that question. I take my hat off to working parents that are doing homeschooling with, with children and your age, your, their ages and younger. How are you coping? Well, to be, I mean, look, we're all we're all a bit challenged, but to be honest with you, I I always think I've got the sweet spot of ages of kids because they're not sort of doing their HSC or anything like that, and they're not um, young enough to so young that I have to stand over them or we need to stand over them and, and help them with their their school is really well equipped. They run their lessons, you know, hour by hour online, and my husband is very much around as well. So I think in terms of all of the scenarios you could have, um, I've got about it I've got it about as good as I could get it and so I'm really grateful for that they're really quite independent they're um quite motivated and you know can look after themselves and and like I said my husband's there to help print out their worksheets and stuff if if they're needed and so it's good it's 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 not too bad you were telling me though about an incident helping them on Monday was it do you want to share with that Well, you know, you did ask me, you know, how's it going? We all have our moments. I did say I'd had a massive day at work on Monday. It was, I do think we were doing some really important work on Monday and full on day. And at the end of the day, my daughter, who's in year six, came into me to ask her maths questions. I shouldn't reveal this, Raoul, but um, I was stumped. I actually could not answer her (laughs) maths questions. And I came as close to having an absolute ball. I just wanted to get into the fetal position and, and cry because I just felt so useless. And then I um, forced her to sit down and watch Survivor with me so we could make feel good about ourselves. So I don't know. I don't know there's, what happened there, but I couldn't do it. That's Mother of the Year award right there. <laughs> don't worry about maths. 
You won't need that. You won't need that. It's overrated. Come and watch Survivor with me. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. So tell us about the role you do now because you um, have been recently promoted to Deputy CEO at EY, which is a is a, a new role. I don't think they, I don't believe they had it before. Yeah. Um, so tell us about what that new role is and how that came about. Um, so... The role is, I mean, I was the markets leader, which meant I was responsible for um, really driving the demand side of our business, our, our accounts, our industry growth, um, our business development, our brand. Um, but the, the, the deputy CEO role is that it's actually a really natural evolution and progression of the same role because it's really about driving the strategic growth and investments of our business it's about looking at the opportunities in the market and really lining up how we go after those together. Um, you know, I think when we think about the breadth of the CEO roles these days, they're so much bigger and more complex than ever they were before. The expectations that are changing of, of organisations to take a stance on societal matters, to navigate incredibly complex lens, it makes sense that you would, um, you know, look to share the load of that as well. Um, so I think it really is, like I said, a really natural um, evolution of where I was playing before. And I get to really support David LaRocca, who's our new CEO, as he sort of sets his ambition for the firm for the next five years, something I'm really, really excited by. Mm, excellent. Well, good. It, so it sounds like a good role. It sounds like a busy role. It's busy, but I love it. It's great. <laughs> good. good. Hey, I want to talk about um, who's been the biggest influences on your uh, career so maybe early career like mm. the biggest influences in your life when you look back who who have they been certainly growing up um it was my dad I mentioned that he was a teacher we actually traveled to school together every day which I absolutely hated at the time because I wanted to be hanging out at the bus stop with the boys and you know the train station and walking along so it's pretty uncool to be driven to school every day with your dad but I really did love it. We have the same sense of humour. We had a lot of time to talk and make jokes. And if you've ever seen the movie To Sir With Love, um, you might remember the Sydney Portier um, was the, the teacher uh, in there. And that was my dad. He was the, the head of the debating team. He was a boxer. So he ran that awesome line of being an inspiring teacher of Shakespeare and, you know, a great orator and being terrifying with the boxing gloves. And I loved that duality of fear and awe that he sort of struck um, so he was a massive influence for me and I would sort of live to impress him and make him laugh. And um, so I think he's, he was absolutely critical in my, you know, growing up years. Um, and then I look, I've been really lucky through the course of my life to have um, various partners in consulting firms or whatever take an interest in me and see something in me that then they just believed in me and I have to say I think they believed in me much more than I ever did they could see something that I couldn't see and in hindsight as I look back I think their unwavering um, conviction in me was something that that um, was pretty fundamental to my career. Mm, I think that's a sign of a good leader when they can act, when they actually do believe in you more yeah. than you believe in yourself. And I think normally that's it's a pretty common theme. It takes someone to believe in you more than you believe in yourself and give you that little push. Um, 
Is your, is your dad still with us? Yes, he is. Yeah. He's with us. Yeah. Was he, um, you live to impress? Is he impressed? Is he proud of you, <laughs> do you think? Well, both my parents will say, you know, we don't know what it is that you do, but it seems very important. So I think that they, they think it's a big deal, but they definitely have no idea what it, what it is. I I often say that the reason I wrote books is because my my parents could then explain what I did because they had no idea what I did. Oh, yeah. um, and then they could at least go, oh, she writes books. Like that's something tangible and they could show people. But, yeah. Well, like my daughter, when she was younger, she sort of explained my career is, yeah, mummy goes to meetings. And I was like, oh, she's probably pretty, nailed it. She's <laughs> pretty accurate. It's like. I remember when my kids were young asking my husband what he did because he used to work at AMP at the time. And he goes, well, you know, I just make phone calls and I send emails. It's just like, that probably yeah, sums it up. It. Yeah, yeah. What is, what's been the biggest challenge you've faced in your career, do you think? Oh, for me, that's an easy one. It's been my mindset. That's it. That's been my biggest challenge and it's a work in progress and I've been living with it for a long time, but uh, hands down, my mindset has been my biggest challenge. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Like it just as it holding you back or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I might, um, I've listened to a number of your podcasts, uh, Raul, and, you know, lots of people will get on and go, you know, they're just fearless with what they go for and what they go after. Um Sorry about the dog in the back. That's all right. That's all right. It will probably set my dog off soon, so don't worry. We're all we're all used to dogs in the background by now. I think on the outside, when people look at me and sort of understand a bit more about my background, which is a fairly non-linear one, I must say, to get into consulting, they would go, "Oh, wow, you've done quite a few different things there." But they have no idea how many things I have said no to, how many opportunities I've walked past, or the toll it's taken on me to to go for the things that I have gone you know the kinds of roles I've had at EY included I have I could probably I know you've got a lot of books behind you that you've written if I was going to write one well mine would probably be on imposter syndrome and how crippling that has been in my life but or for me anyway internally so I think I've spent an enormous amount of time trying to deal with the feelings and thoughts that I've had around I can't do that I would not be good enough for that there's somebody better to do that than me you know that sort of thing so yep my mindset has been it yeah because imposter syndrome is real and it can be it can actually stop people like you've said putting their hand up for things Mm. like it is so it's so fearful to be found out and of course it's just it's not real but you, you know it's not real but um it's it's a fear that uh, we don't put your hand up for things because you were you you were being um, recommended or encouraged to put your hand up for the CEO role too at the time, weren't you? I was, yep. yeah. And even the markets leader role, same thing. I was being asked to put my hand up um, for it. I was in the definite, you know, back in my mindset space. No way, no how. Couldn't couldn't be me. I wouldn't know the first thing about that. Um, I will say I've gotten a lot better, right? but um, that's with a lot of work on it. Yeah. Markets Leader was, so I know you've interviewed our previous CEO, Tony Johnson, before. I reckon Tony and I had three full conversations, you know, will you throw your hat in the ring? Will you go for it? People see you. And I said, no, no, no. I laughed. No, 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 no. Then I went, I'll go away and have a think about it. I went away, did my time in Byron as I do every year, came back, still no. Still the answer was no. 
Um, and it was, you know, I mentioned people in my life who've had this belief in me more than I, Tony's one of them and said, look, people really see something in you. And I really had to sit with that and go, okay, well, let me think about that. What would I bring to it rather than, you know, what wouldn't I, what, if, what could I bring to it? Um, and for every one of those things that I finally said yes to, I've never looked back. The markets leader role was the best role I've ever, ever had in my life. And I expect the same for the deputy CEO where I, you know, ended up taking that leap, but geez, it wasn't without some, some anguish and some soul searching on my part mm. <laughs> along the way. What, what, so what is it that, and maybe you've sort of answered this is what finally gets you to say yes, because you're right. I, I remember interviewing Tony mm. at the time and, it, you know, he used that as an example because mm. um, we were speaking about gender diversity and he was saying that, you know, he's had to have several conversations with people to encourage them. Yes. And I, of mine. <laughs> yes. Um, so what is it, is it someone like, like someone like Tony that like literally is is not going to let up is not going to let up on you saying no I, before I think and I think I've come a long way but oh well a way um it wasn't just Tony Lynn Krauss was another person who, who had been in this role pr- prior to me and had encouraged me but when I was talking about it you know I, I my strength is that I can tell a, a pretty decent story. I can be really convincing. The problem with that is, is I can believe my own crap when I say, oh, these are the reasons I can't do something. I'm, I can be really, really convinced of that. Uh, and so there I was really strongly outlining all the reasons why not, you know, and people like Lynn would say, but, but what you have no idea, you can define this role. You can make it be what you want it to be. You can all of those things that you're worried about, change them if you're worried about those things. That's within your gift. That's within your power. And, and I said, oh my God, I'm feeling sick in my stomach. And she said, you're feeling sick because you're actually on the precipice. You're about to make that leap. And then she said to me, nobody wants to see you fail. Like they're not encouraging because they want, they're not encouraging you because they want you to get up there and then fall over. And I thought that's so true. Like they're not wanting to see me fail. And it's not me on my own. I've got an army of people around me, like Lynn, like Tony, like so many others. And so that that feeling in my stomach is actually excitement and uh, about the opportunity, not not fear and, and lean into that. And I, I haven't looked back and actually what I've done since then. So when the deputy said, that was a really, that was a, that was a hell yeah for me on that one. I didn't hesitate that time round. One, maybe because it's a natural evolution Two, I really believe in David and, and love working with him. But I really have understood that as I've taken those bigger roles, I can be in far bigger service to others having that seat at the table. I can achieve more for the firm, for our people, for our partners being able to exercise my voice. So forget about all my worries about me. Rather, what can I do with that? And how can I, I think if you can, if you can think about it of being in service to others and being able to leave a bigger legacy, having a bigger impact, that becomes a far more exciting proposition to me than operating out of fear, you know? So I think that's really helps. And I, and on the imposter syndrome, the other thing I've realized is if I'm feeling like an imposter, it's because I actually am. It's the first time I'm doing something. Anytime, you know, you were an imposter, Gabrielle, the first time you wrote a book, you were never an author before. So you're probably an, an imposter to the author world. 
but then you leaned in and you wrote the book and now you're not an imposter. So now I try to use it as a signal of, okay, this is the first time I'm doing something. So yes, it's an imposter. So I'll learn about it and then I won't be an imposter anymore. It's okay. Because every time I'm doing something new, I'm putting myself outside the comfort zone, which by definition means I'm uncomfortable. So that's yeah. okay. I love I love so many things you've just said then and, and also that definition of imposter because first of all, yeah, I remember the first time I wrote, well, a lot of times I've written the book is like feeling physically sick putting it out there because you're just going, oh my God, this is like, yeah, who do, who do I think I am? Are you, like you didn't even you didn't even pass English in your final year of school. So who do you think? So I love all that. I also love the fact that um, when people are telling you, you you've got so much to add to this, this realisation that they're not setting you up for failure. They would, yeah. if, if, if you... If you respect the person giving you that that advice and you trust them, of course they're not setting you up for failure. They wouldn't would wouldn't do it. And it's almost, um, you know. And I love being in service. It's it's almost get out of your own way. Okay. Yeah. Yes, it's scary. Yes, yes, you you'll learn your way through it. But if you've got that stuff to offer and people are encouraging you to do it, um, it's it's almost like if you flip it on its head, it's almost look you're being selfish not to. That's because yeah, that's, I've done a heap to try to flip that on its yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you if you come from a place that being service, then you know you do you do the best. That's cool. Well, it sounds like you have done a lot of work on your <laughs> mindset, so that that's a that's a very cool thing. Um, what's been the highlight of your career? Gosh, I've had a, a lot of highlights. Oh, that's a privileged thing to say, isn't it? You've had lots of highlights. Mm, yes, it is. If I had to pick one. <clears throat> um, there was an event um, that I had the opportunity to lead back in 2018, which we called at EY um, Future Realised. Now, there's no easy way to describe this quickly. Oh, if I try to do it quickly, think semi-festival of dangerous ideas meets Burning Man, albeit fully clothed. <laughs> We all had our clothes on, I have to say that. A highly experiential event. Um, and I'd just come into the role as a markets leader and we in the March and in November we ran this event. And I we opened the event, so it was Tony and I had this opening, with Sir Bob Geldof. Now, so you get on the stage. Oh, hang on, that's, that's a mic drop moment. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we'll just call it a day and I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll send you some photos. It's not, not, as, good, not as good as my Barack Obama no, no, moment, I but, know, you know. I have like... to, you definitely, <laughs> definitely win. But so, so Bob is a pretty, pretty out there and he's massively provocative, deeply intelligent, a huge change maker. And he set the scene for an entirely different event. Now, this was a massive leap of faith for us to run this event, captive event on Cockatoo Island. We had Alan Joyce, we had Julie Bishop, uh, Stan Grant. We had convened some of the biggest conversations uh, about purpose and trust and ethics and innovation. It was an absolute game changer and of event in terms of our shifting the mindset of our partners and our clients around the power of the collective and the art of the possible. So whether it was the shift in mindset, whether it was the nature of this experiential event, whether it was the fact that, you know, I got to hang out for three days with Bobby G as we got to at the end, um, it was hands down an absolute highlight in my career. Uh, that Well, that, that, that does sound like an amazing highlight. I hope you got lots of photos. I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all around the, all in the pool room. <laughs> um, how, how do you think your leadership has changed throughout your career so that your style of leadership how has it evolved yeah oh, 
Probably in a whole range of ways, but certainly um, one thing that comes to mind for me is I think I evolved from a leader who would get it done to a leader that would make it happen. So that shift of getting it done to making it happen, I, I, when I look back, actually, I was reading an article or listening to something about a, a week ago, and there was an expression um, around toxic martyrdom. And I was like, oh, my God, I think that was me. <laughs> where, you know, where you would be the one that would stay the latest and you would do the most work and you would sort of sigh, but I'll do it, guys. You know, I'd never take a sick day and all that sort of stuff. I'd always make it fun with my teams to work together, but I guess the way I used to operate was, you know, working so hard to deliver the most amazing output that would hopefully inspire people to want to do the same thing and be part of creating something that was just so amazing to over time, just realizing that was a terrible set of examples, you know, great intention. And actually, like I said, I would make it fun, but I'm much more, I mean, over the last, I don't know how many, seven, eight years, it's much more being focused on building high-performing teams who have a shared goal, who feel inspired towards working together on something. We understand, you know, who's got what pieces of the play here, how we pass the ball to each other, um, where, how to hold each other and ourselves to account in that really collective way, rather than, you know, like I said, getting it done and just working around the clock to get it done. It's a far different uh, way of operating far more fulfilling for me for everybody else that's working around me so I'd say that's a pretty fundamental shift that I made you know over the years mm. has um, that is that been do you think that's you personally or do you think there's been a shift in I guess across all professional service firms towards that because you know that professional service firms especially 10 years ago were known as pretty you know cutthroat long ridiculous hours um, has there been a bit of a shift in the industry, do you think? I think, yes. I think there are, I mean, I think we have a whole lot more new language in our lexicon really to be able to refer to that, you know, presenteeism, you know, that wasn't a word that we used to use back in the day and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think expectations have shifted of what people are willing to do. They expect there to be a higher order purpose in work that they do. They don't, they want the work-life balance. So there is those norms that have changed but I also know even in amongst that context I personally have changed in what I value as quality work what I would see as success um, is far more holistic in its nature you know how did how did we feel getting there together like what was the process to get to that end result not just the result itself um, so I think that's been um, that's been a big shift. I also think for me, you know, growing up, um, you know, as a I was the only dark-skinned girl at my school. I I worked in male-dominated environments, um, so I was the only female in certain areas. I used to I used to be in the army. I used to work in prisons. So I was quite a different kind of person when I joined consulting. My background was not at all like what the other consultants. And I used to sort of temper that. I used to um, almost smooth away the difference 
in order to fit in and not for that not to be confronting. That's what I learned over time that, you know, people like you because you you make them feel good to be around and I'm not that, I wasn't that confronting, you know, with my difference. And over time, I don't, I learned to see that that wasn't a liability, actually. It was a strength. Those differences of strengths. I bring different thoughts, different ideas, different cultural context, all of that. And so I think personally, one of my, you know, periods of growth has been understanding how to use that voice and how to um, elevate those differences as my strengths. It's been a huge shift for me. And I guess, you know, as you know, I run a podcast series as well. And the more people I have interviewed, what I have been attracted to is the differences. Uh, some of them have disabilities. Some of them have, you know, di- different, whatever the things are. And that's the bit that makes them interesting. So mm. for God's sake, why would I try to blend that away when everyone is trying to stand out? Why am I trying to, you know, blur away? So that's been a big shift over time as well. Yeah. And on that, I guess has, um, you know, with this concept of fit, you know, trying to fit in, which I think we all do at some point, mm. um, has at times that you've been really challenged and like to stay true to your values where they have been challenged and, how hard was it or what did you do or have you experienced that? You know, it's funny. I think about it from a couple of angles. I think about it challenged by my own values with myself, right? So there's values that are in con- in, um, in contrast to an organisation's values and then there's your the dissonance that you have with your own values. If I start with that, the dissonance with my own personal values, I, humility would be one of those. I have been raised, I've come from a very grounded family. You know, we have absolutely humility at the core of the way that we think and we operate. Um, But that humility has been in conflict with the way that I have operated. You know, so think about the whole conversation on imposter syndrome. Mm. It's like I wore the imposter syndrome with a bad like with a badge of honor because actually I was being humble oh no I couldn't do that other people are better so you can see how that value actually played out to be highly um, restrictive um, and constrained and so deep down you know subconsciously unconsciously I think the value of humility became you know a good thing for me in my mind that I wouldn't be so brash and out there and non-humble by saying yeah yeah I've got to go for that I'd be good for that so I can see how that has actually hurt me and then as I've said to you done a lot of work on the thinking around that to then change the question of how will this opportunity allow me to be in better service of others allows me to get back to that humble place that is deep in my value set but allows me to push for more so that's an example I guess of um my own value conflict, you know, when, you know, your strength overused is your Achilles heel, I guess. So that's probably one of those. When it comes to the rub in an organization or, you know, of values, I guess perhaps my own values around inclusion, and I really believe in the inclusiveness of all, um, but growing up where I had to fit in and my way of fitting in was to try to dull down my difference. As I got more senior in the organisation, I could see how that was in conflict with inclusiveness and that I needed to exercise my voice. So to make that shift from quieting your voice to fit in to actually using your voice to stand up for others, 
those points of, hey, that's not okay, to the very people that I'd really worked hard to build that trust and relation and that whole sort of, you know, jokey familiarity to suddenly kind of clear your throat and go, actually, that really wasn't funny and that really isn't okay. I, I remember those points of inflection for me where I was like, you know, this is not okay. I've got to change the way that I'm, I've got to call that out. And actually all of those things have, have gone very well in having called that out, you know. Mm. It's still a tough call to call them out. Very always, tough call. Yeah. Very tough call. I've got, um, I've got a card on my desk that uh, when you were just talking before, I pulled out because it says, when you realise your value to others, confidence is no longer about self-promotion. That's it. That's yeah. exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. So I think, I think you've, uh, you've reached, you've found it. <laughs> you found it. Hey, what do you love about the job? You, you clearly love your job. You look, you look so bloody happy and, you know, <laughs> you're home with kids and it's we're in lockdown, but you're, you're Despite, radiant. Yeah, Just, yeah. Oh, you're, looking, you're loving it. Power of makeup, Ralph. Power of makeup. <laughs> um, oh, what do I love about I love so many things. I guess I feel very privileged that I get to work all day, every day with very smart, very purposeful, fun, energetic, entrepreneurial people who want to make a difference and in an organization that wants to make a difference and in an environment where we can make a difference. Like that's a really cool thing where you go, I want to do something and I can do it. Uh, I feel enormous responsibility to um, make a difference for people's careers. I, I really recognize that they spend a chunk, a massive chunk of their lives in our organization. So um, we better make it good. We better make those experiences, the kinds of experiences where they can grow, they can feed their families, they can, you know, have exciting uh, opportunities. Um, I love the expression that says, you know, we've all, you know, we stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before us. You know, we've all drunk from wells that we didn't dig. We've been warmed by fires that we didn't light. And I think, well, I want to dig a deeper well. I want to light more fires for people because I think that's our job. I get to sit in a position where I have a seat at the table that looks over such breadth of issues, whether it's trust or ethics or financials or, you know, value proposition or our clients' needs in the biggest areas. And I get to be in a position where I help paint a picture um, of the future. I help influence societal issues. I get to bring people along on a journey and I get them to see you know, that power of the collective of what we can achieve and how the sum of the parts are greater than the whole. And if we bring those parts together, what is it that we can do? And I really, really believe we can do anything. I really do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having, you know, I'm a lover of change, you know that. I, you yes. know, I, I like to make change happen. And it's a massive task in a partnership. It's massive task in a matrix organization. It's a massive task in a global matrix partnership, let me tell you. So figuring that out and figuring out what makes people tick, what's holding them back, what would it take to make them change really gets me up in the morning every single day. And I go, yeah, we can do this. I reckon that's your book. Don't worry about imposter syndrome. <laughs> that's, that's your book title. Making change happen. Yeah. Um, so, well, talk about change. Uh, the last 18 months have been a massive change for mm -hmm. everyone. Um, and I, I don't even want to talk about the challenges because <laughs> there have been many. But what's been the silver lining for you, both professionally and personally, what's been the silver lining out of COVID for you? Um. Well, maybe, you know, surprise. I mean, there's a couple, there's a few things. Definitely being with my family. You know, I used to travel a lot as a consultant and um, 
I clearly don't anymore. And whilst I miss some elements of that. I was going to say, I was going to say, we can say it just between you and me as mums. What do you secretly miss about traveling? Oh my God. Having my own bed. (laughs) (laughs) Just sitting in bed. Lying. No one asking you questions. No one's speaking to me. Or I could work unapologetically or not do whatever. Like I just, yeah, I do miss some of that. I do. But I do Sleeping diagonally, you just do it because you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's absolutely no desire for that in real life. But because I can, I will splay. Um, No, I I do love being with a family every single night. And I think that's been fantastic for us, particularly with the age of my kids, 12 and 13. Like that window is going to go and they're going to move on with their lives and all of that. But we've the awesome foursome at home. I think that that's that's just been awesome. That's been fantastic. I also, the other, one of the silver linings for me, you know, I am a change agent. I loved making change happen. And so much change has happened in our organisation over this last 18 months that might have taken another five, 10 years. So I feel super excited about whether it is the way that you think that you work, whether it's the hustle and pace to help clients, whether it's, you know, gathering around together to learn what's most relevant to talk, you know, to people about there is just stuff that's happened. It's created this impetus for change um, and for working in different ways and for paying attention to different things that, you know, has really sort of accelerated. And I, I do love that. I love that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the, the way we work forever um, has changed because of this. And yeah, I, I know a lot of, lot of people, um, even people from EY that have uh, lived close to the city because they've had to and and during the pandemic have moved down the coast or out to the regions because they can and there's a realization now that we can so that's been a great silver lining I think for everyone hopefully um when you're not working yeah (laughs) what's the one thing that you um love doing you know Pre-lockdown days, it was a lot of, I would say, things like yoga and Pilates. And look, I'm a, I'm a lover of dance as well, so I'd hit the occasional, you know, pop-up dance classes, believe it or not. Um, but since the pandemic, I have become a very big walker and podcaster. So I, I'm a prolific listener of podcasters, podcasts, I should say, and I walk a lot. And so walking and listening to those, and there's a huge diversity of podcasts that I listen to. So I get a lot of steps up and a lot of listening in. What's your favourite one you're listening to at the moment? Um, oh, it sort of changes a lot. So I do listen to The Imperfect. So Hugh Van Kylenberg, who's also one of my um, previous guests. I listen to he's a lot. I listen to the Mamma Mia podcast. It's a whole range of pods on there. And I listen to How I Work. Um, so productivity stuff as well so yeah there's always a range going on yeah good all right if you could change one thing about you what would it be and you can't say nothing um change one thing about me i i would never say nothing Ral. i'd never say nothing um that's for sure <laughs> well you can't for someone who loves change you can't say oh no i exactly. wouldn't change but anything for, for someone i think it's still i still think it's the mindset like i still think i've got um a work in progress come a long way but i'd still love to be far more bullish about things than i am (laughs) uh okay you've uh, one of my questions i love to ask people is what their favorite quote is and i've noticed that you've slipped a few quotes in already yeah yeah okay well because i consider myself you know pretty good on the quotes too what's your 
What's yeah. your favourite? You can give me perhaps two. Given, perhaps given how much I've talked to you about the mind stuff for me, the one that I'm looking at my whiteboard here that's sitting there, I always have a range of them going, but I have one that's been there for the longest this year, it, which is don't believe everything you think. Yeah. And that's been really powerful for me. And I've yeah. got a little picture of an elephant with a noose around, with a um, rope around his neck because he could, he, she, the elephant could move at any time. They could break away from that rope, but they believe that they are um, tied to that. They can't move. So I think, you know, like I said, my, my mind can be a very powerful thing and it can really hold me back. So don't believe everything you think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's yeah. It's a, it's, um, there's a lot in that that's the, the stories we tell ourselves. They, they could either service uh, really like, yeah, you could do this or they, they can hold us back. And it's, um, it's what like you said before, it was like, we're the, we're the worst judge of whether we can do something. And we, if you've got people around you saying you could do this, you can yeah. do this. It's yeah. like, just get out of your own way and stop believing the stories you tell yourself. Okay. Excellent. Um, before we get into the, Fast three at the end. Okay. Um, you, you know I'm a you know I'm the founder of Jargon Free Fridays, and we've often had you talks are. about jargon. <laughs> What's your deputy CEO, right? Mm-hmm. You could you could with a with a swipe of your pen make it illegal <laughs> to use a certain corporate jargon word across EY. What would it be if you could to say we are never to use this again? What do you think it would be? Well, first of all, full disclosure, I am a consultant. And so yeah, no, we well, the, you create them. You create the, con, consultants create jargon. So when they're talking to their clients, the clients go, Oh, oh, this all sounds very, very, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I I will openly confess that we're we, the collective consultants, are huge contributors to the use of, you know, we turn everything into a verb or we use them in the wrong context. Yeah. Leveraging, triangulating, calendarizing. <laughs> Um, there's actually a lot of flywheels happening at the moment. Lots flywheels. Of oh, yeah, that's yeah, a new one. Flywheels. Yeah. What's a flywheel? Um, oh, when you're creating that impetus, oh, you're creating the flywheel. The flywheel. I have, you I you know, I, I heard one the other day, horizontal alignment. Oh, yeah, there we go. I see. You you know it. You probably um, know. So, look, I know you and I have a shared despising of the word pivot, and I which is, you know, I had declared that publicly a very, very long time ago, which became incredibly difficult to honour during COVID where everyone, everyone was, was pivoting to do that. But I have to tell you this funny story. I was in a meeting with a client um, and we were talking about something and hands down the most natural word to use in that particular moment was going to be pivot. <laughs> but I'd already declared to all of my team that I will not use that word. So they were sitting in the meeting. And so in that moment I said, I think we need to shape shift instead. And my client stopped the meeting and said, sorry, Janelle, did you just say shape shift? Is, is that from Moana? <laughs> so in that situation, perhaps pivot might've been better. I reckon pivot would have been better. You could have just said change. I could have said to move. We just need to slightly tweak something. I don't know what can I say? It was in the moment. Oh no, there you go. <laughs> That's all right. Well, well, we are we are both on the we're both on the same page with pivot. Oh my God, See, same go. page. Yeah, run that up the flagpole. <laughs> okay, we're going to end mm-hmm. on some quick fire questions. Okay, what's the one meal you love cooking? Um, well. It's not going to sound very technical. I know you're a bit of a cook and I see your pictures on Instagram. So, but um, I'm a bit of a fan of the beef vermicelli bowl. 
it's really easy. It's pretty, it's fresh, it's healthy. And then I've got one of those fancy peelers that make the zucchini look like noodles. So it's got a bit of fanciness without any, you know, any work. real effort. Yeah. What's, what's um like, what's the, the meal the kids really ask for? Have the, did the kids ask for a favorite meal? Or? They really like that. So they're, okay. both, they're fresh eaters, but they always want me to make um, chicken mango salsa wraps. They love, they love the freshness of it. Mm. That sounds good. I'm getting I'm getting a few ideas for go. dinner here tonight. We had fish tacos last night. Okay, what's your favourite eighty song or artist? Oh god, that's hard. 80s I know is it's such hard. A phenomenal um, era. Like for me, the eighties is I was all Michael Jackson, Madonna, U two, In Excess, Eurythmics. That was my jam for the eighties. So I couldn't pick a song, but. God, I loved all of them. Mm. Can you remember where you were when you heard Michael Jackson died? Oh, my God. I was in the shower. Um, I was in the shower and my husband came in and knocked on the door and he's like, Michael Jackson's gone. I came out, grabbed a towel, came out. I was like, oh, my God. And I just I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe it. It was mm. um, same with uh, Michael Hutchins when he died. I mm. remember that really clearly as well. I just, oh. Unbelievable. What a loss. Yeah, I know. I remember we were driving to a family trip to Wagga Wagga when I heard that Michael Jackson died. I was mm. like, oh, my God. It was like, anyway, yes, but he was good, Michael Jackson. All right, final question. If you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Have a crack. Have a crack. <laughs> I love it. I was hoping it would be something along the lines. <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> Janelle, thank you so much for being part of the podcast series. Um, really, really loved uh, talking to you and getting your insights, as I'm sure a lot of um, the listeners will, and especially a lot of females that suffer from imposter syndrome. I think you've given them some really good insights and some food for thought to help them get over this. And um, I am pretty sure your dad is very super impressed. Your mum and dad would be very super impressed with what you do, even though they probably got no idea what no you do. No idea, but thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Authentic Leadership Podcast. We welcome your suggestions for leaders you would like to hear from in future episodes.